Okay, uh, welcome to the second episode of the Luke Nielsen podcast, and I'm joined today by another one of my favorite human beings on planet Earth, my youngest brother, Landon Nielsen. Thanks for being here, man. You bet. Not a problem. Happy to be here. Now, when I talked to Logan, um, we started kind of the same way I'm going to start this one, where we have sort of an interesting background between like three brothers all born within five years all raised by the same parents growing up in rural Iowa and we all went very different career paths Logan talked a little bit last time about his you know going to film school and being a stand-up comedian I have a fairly traditional profession in terms of being a teacher and a coach Mm -hmm. and you eventually became a wildland firefighter (laughs) Correct. So first, maybe take me on what's the journey to, you know, this is not this is a profession that a lot of people even know about. Right. So what brought you to that? Okay. Um, I guess, yeah, we all grew up uh, small towns in Ansgar, Iowa. And I feel like, you know, you always kind of always knew what you wanted to go. Logan struggled a little bit, but I think he always knew he wanted to do something in the theater realm. And I never really knew what I wanted to do. I was... Uh, I didn't really want to go to college, kind of something I did just because. Um, so it took a pretty different path. I, you know, tried a couple different colleges just because it was the thing to do. It was never for me. I always kind of quit, and then I ended up getting a job um, in Valero Energy, where our father works. Uh, it's an ethanol plant in Charles City, Iowa. And uh, that was kind of my first introduction to, I guess, real-life stuff. And, uh, I had done, you know, I, I was always kind of interested in the fire realm. I tried a couple of things, got like a certificate in structure fire. And then I was working with these older men and they, uh, kind of told me like, you know, you can't do this forever. You can't work at a plant like this. You should, uh, check out wildland fire. And again, a kid from Iowa, I didn't even know what that really was. I was aware of forest fires, didn't know people fought them and had jobs in it. So I looked it up. There's a school in uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, Itasca Community College, and it's one of the premier um, wildland fire schools and forestry schools in the country, community college-wise. And uh, went to that, got hired by North Dakota Forest Service, and that's been the last five years of my life. So, <laughs> Well, and it's maybe important to note here that before this wildland firefighting adventure, Landon was one of those people that you would have probably pegged to not leave like a 10 mile (laughs) radius of home. Right. Uh, You know, I remember when you kind of just decided like, yep, I'm going up to this Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Yeah. I'm going to do this. And everybody's kind of like, man, are you sure? (laughs) Right. Right. um, (laughs) So what, what I, I mean, just was it talking to those you know, older guys that you'd worked with, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, what was the thing that I finally have to go do this? Right. I, I guess, it, you know, that was that was helpful. These guys who've experienced some things in life and kind of tell me how big the world is. Because I was a guy who never really wanted to leave his hometown. And then, I don't know, I guess I got that itch to want to do something important mm-hmm. in my eyes. And, uh, you know, I, I tried other things. I, you know, I thought about the military. I thought I thought about something just to make me feel like I was contributing somehow. And then this this wildland thing was kind of introduced to me, and it was honestly just like I'm gonna I'm chase this whimsy. I'm I'm gonna go for this. I'm gonna go make this happen. 
And uh, I did, and it was the best decision I've ever made in my life, I would say. It uh, led me down paths and led me to places and do done things that I never, if you would have told my 18-year-old self that I would have done all these different things, I, I wouldn't have known what to think. It, it's been a wild journey, that's for sure. Absolutely. And so now I want to kind of get back into then. So you go up to the Itasca Community College. Yep. And so I want to spend a little time talking about what it means to be a wildland firefighter. Now, there has been that profession's gotten a little bit of recognition lately in terms right. of the, the movie that came out. Right. Um, I think there's a, even a show on some channel on oh, cable now that I'm, follows it. I'm sure. I say, yeah, but, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I'll even tell people what you do and then it's a lot of questions and you know and i only know anecdotally from the things that you've told me but you know, like i've learned so many words that i didn't know existed and <laughs> right. you know, all these different things so starting with while you're at itasca what are some of the things that you're studying to go into this okay uh, it's a really interesting school and uh i honestly like any kid who doesn't really know what they want to do go, like, go spend a year there you're in a beautiful place northern minnesota and you're learning a cool trade and it's a cool summer job too. Even if you know, you want to do other things with your life. But so you go, I, we went there and you're taking classes like uh, forest inventory and you're literally measuring the board feet in a forest. You go find a plot, a random plot and you measure the trees in it and you measure their height and you calculate the board feet, their basal area. And then you're doing a plant taxonomy or dendrology class and you're learning all about, plants you know you're the different trees and different native plants and different you know bog plants and everything you're learning the scientific names and all that then you're also taking you know strictly so the national wildland coordinating group they have their own classes that you have to you have to qualify for those classes to be considered a firefighter you don't need to have forest inventory and all these things but you need uh like s s130 s190 which is basic wildland fire you need um, S211, S212, which is pumps and chainsaws. And uh, so, so you're also taking these wildland fire classes that will get you hired by a company. And then you're also taking uh, like leadership classes, which is another really cool part of it. We took L180, which is followership to leadership, and L280, which is leadership, uh, advanced leadership. Mm. And uh, so you, it's really cool. And, you know, most people who are out there enjoy the outdoors and enjoy – you know, the leadership setting and uh, working hard. And it's, it's a really, it fit me, suited me mm. perfectly. So. And so then, okay. So you, you go through your classes, you get all the certification things you need. Now, you know, there's not just wildland fire jobs anywhere. Right. So how do you go about then getting on a crew if this is something you're doing full time? Right. It's, it's a little different. It's a different process. There's different ways you apply. There's uh, USA Jobs is the federal government, and you they, they have postings every now and again, and you, and you apply to the federal government. I actually work for the state of North Dakota, and I just was, you know, again, Itasca Community College is just, it was a really great thing for me to go do. And the state forest service in North Dakota, they came and did interviews. And I actually wasn't even there on the interview day. I was missing. But my buddy, Two Chains, who I'll probably bring up quite a bit in this podcast, uh, he was hired by them, asked if he had anybody else who he knew was a really good worker, and they hired me blind. It, but it's just, you know, a lot of it is you kind of make friends in the business and you you get through that way as well. You just being yeah. a good person and knowing that you're a hard worker. And But it 
it is lucky that way. So you have, uh, you know, USA jobs and then there's other, you know, DNR jobs and stuff like that post on normal sites. But mm-hmm. a lot of it is just kind of knowing some people. Okay. So, yeah. No, that answers my question. Yeah. <laughs> um, rambling. Um, so then you go from Itasca, you get this job working for the state of North Dakota. Right. North Dakota Fire Management. Yeah. Right. And then, so maybe just give us a little bit, and let's start with when you're on a fire. Mm-hmm. A little bit, which obviously it's very involved, but right. like what are some of the things that you're doing when, you know, what does it look like even like, hey, the call comes and we have to go to a fire. It's not like, being a structural firefighter right. in a town where it's like we're you know we're going to this block you're going states you right. know so right. what does that right. look like starting out what are you doing when you get to a fire okay so um I get, i'll talk about a statewide fire and you know maybe a national fire too so it's a little different so we had a rule if we get a call and it's something in state we have 30 minute response time out of the shop within 30 minutes so we get the call everybody's got to get to the shop we're rolling, and if it's in state, we're probably rolling lights and sirens, mm. and we're and we're getting there as quick as possible. And it's initial attack phase if it's in state, you know, North Dakota fire. So that's an initial attack fire, and that's wild. Those are the fun fires. Mm-hmm. Um, you go out of state, you go national fire. You get a call. We have that uh, is two hour. We have a two hour window because we got you know we got to prepare for fourteen to twenty one days. Mm-hmm. You're gone that long away from home, so. We have a two-hour window where we get everything we need. We make sure the trucks are good. You know, we, we always keep really good care of the trucks and make sure everything's in order anyway so we can boogie whenever we need be. But two hours to get everything you need, get the food in your pack, get your water in your pack, get everything extra you might need for the trip. And we're heading out the door. And national fires, like my first fire I ever fought was the largest fire in the state of Washington's history. <laughs> it was over 300,000 acres. It was called the Carlton Complex Fire. And a complex fire is where, you know, there's certain fires in the area and they all kind of converge together. Mm-hmm. It's such a, you know, high fire danger in that area. So uh, it was the complex fire and it was huge. I mean, thousands of firefighters all camping out right next to each other. And we flew in, the National Guard came in and was feeding us. We were working with convict crews and we're, I mean, working with people from, all over the United States and further. Yeah. So it, it's a national fires are a really wild experience, but uh, yeah, something it's, it's certainly an experience. It's it's different. So what is if you can put into words what's some of the initial feelings that first time you show up at the Carlton Complex? It's your first real fire. What are some of the things going through your head at that point? Right. And being a rookie, it's, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed. You're kind of, it's a lot to take in and you're, you're driving in and you're still, I mean, miles and miles and miles away and you can see the plume of smoke, you know, and mm. you see the big column of smoke. You're like, holy cow, like I, I'm going to go be at that soon here. <laughs> and, and then you show up. And I remember my first day too, like, you know, you get, you get sent to a certain assignment, say you, so you get sent to your division. It's very militaristic. It's the best way to operate as, as a fire crew. So, uh, we show up, we talk to operations and supply and all, all the things that we need. We need to, you know, sync up our mics. So we're talking to the right people and all that sort of stuff. And then, uh, you get sent to your division. You talk to your division soup. He tells you where he wants you, what sections he wants to protect. 
So you're there, you're protecting a couple houses, maybe you're doing some checks. And then all of a sudden, I remember my first day, uh, fire started ripping up this hill. And all of a sudden, like we're running lights and sirens and we're running a hose and lighting a back burn towards this this section. You know, it wasn't going to get anything crazy, but we just want to control the flame. Like we're not going to mm-hmm. stop this thing, but try to control it as best you can. And I remember, you know, your first day and it's, wow, like this is, this is for real. So yeah, it's a wild first thing to get into, but then it becomes part of the job like anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and just, I mean, maybe some details for people who don't know the job as well. So you were part of an engine crew, right? So you guys are an engine. So not all wildland crews are right. So you have trucks, right? And then I think, you know, I remember even when you got into it and sort of the picture that people have of firefighters in general fighting fires, like we're laying hose and we're spraying water. Right. Kind of rarely the case in wildland fire, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, depending on the fire. So generally you can get water there if there's a source, if you have a lake or something like that. Mm-hmm. If, if there's no water source there, it's all hand work. It's hand crews. So like my crew, we, we ran uh, a strike team of engines, but we, we also had the capability of running a type two IA hand crew. We're a type two initial attack. So people have heard about smoke jumpers and hot shots and stuff like that. It's all basically the same job, but uh, hot shots have higher qualifications. They get sent to kind of the cooler parts of the wall and the gnarlier parts of the fire. So uh, type two IA crew. So it's, you're going in there, you're generally you have maybe two lead sawyers cutting stuff. Then you have swampers. Those are guys who are coming in behind them, throwing, you know, your lane. And then you have like 14 guys coming behind them, swinging a tool, digging a hand line to, you know, potentially stop this fire in the middle of the forest or, you know, up on a, on a hill somewhere that's good where it's not going to rush back down at us. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. So a lot of it is hand crew work. And we always talk about that too, you know, like all the technology in the world, all these things. And sometimes the best thing is boots on the ground doing hard work. It's a wild thing, but it's the way it is. Absolutely. So, I mean, so the vast majority of your job, I mean, you're trying to eliminate fuel source for the fire. Right. In order to contain things, protect property, those sorts of things. Right. That's generally the best technique. Like people just assume you you know, if you don't have water, what do you do? You're like, that's, we rarely are actually spray, spraying water on a fire to put it out. Absolutely. We'll, we'll put in a line, either a dozer line or a hand line, or we'll, we'll come off a road or something like that. And we'll might lay, lay a little hose line. And then the goal is to burn a fire back towards the head fire. That is always mm-hmm. probably the safest way to do it. And it, it, you know, cuts out all that fuel for us that we don't have to worry about then less for us to get in there and you know have a tree fall on us or something like that so absolutely and then so tell me a little bit about the duration of days that you might be on these fires because there's a couple different ways they can block out the time is that right 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 so they can you get sent to a national fire you're signed up for 14 days minimum Generally, unless you get a serious weather event that puts it out or something, monsoon rains down in the southwest or something like that. Mm. So you sign up for 14 pretty much no matter what. Sometimes they'll re-up you and they can re-up you for another seven straight. So 21 straight days or they can re-up you and give you two R&R days. 
and then another 14 for a total of 30. Sure. So you're away from it. And you're not going to go home for those two R&R days. You're going to go bunk up in the nearest city Mm -hmm. and then sign up for the next roll of 14. Sure. So. Okay. So wildfires are rolling. You're digging. You're cutting trees. You're burning fires. You're. You know, perhaps spraying water, you know, depending on the fire, but it's mm-hmm. manual labor. Oh, yeah, big time. How many hours a day are you doing this? Um, generally, like 12 guaranteed, mm-hmm. up to 16. Most days, you're kind of banking on 16. And then, initial, if you're out there on initial attack phase, like North Dakota fires, if we're showing up, it's initial attack phase. And you're hourly, you're two to one ratio of, you know, you can work 16 hours and you have to take eight off mm-hmm. does not apply anymore. Gotcha. You're, if you're showing up, like we fought a fire in Bismarck and I was probably on it for 48 straight hours. Then we went and like bunked up in our lockers for three hours, woke back <laughs> up and went and fought it for another eight yeah. or so. And then yeah. we called it out, but sure. So it's, but so yeah, with national fire, you're, you're generally working at least <clears throat> 14 <clears throat> Um, 14 days of 16 hour days, I would say. Okay. And then now when at the point where you do get to bunk down a bit for the day, it's not like you're going to the Ritz Carlton. What's <laughs> right. that, what's that look like at the end of the day where it's like, Hey, we're, we're stopping for a few hours until we fight all day tomorrow. Right. It's, uh, it, that's, you know, kind of the, one of the fun parts of the job too is, uh, you get to sleep in like really cool places that you never <laughs> imagine people would sleep in. So uh, if you're at a big incident, you, you know, get back to camp, you shovel some food in your face as quick as you can, get some calories. And then most of us, a lot of people put up their tents, like our crew, we, we made it. So you had to tear down everything. So we're IA ready always. Mm-hmm. So we're never leaving anything, you know, putting everything back in our truck in the morning when we wake up. So all of us, nobody puts up a tent. We would just lay down a bivy, a bivy sack and a sleep bag. I would sleep for my pillow. I just put a sweatshirt in one of my, um, you know, squish bags, one of my, uh, seat of summit bags. And that's how I rolled. I, I didn't even have a sleeping pad until like my third year. Like, <laughs> it's kind of funny, like how, how you gen, you know, you just get better stuff and you get better at it over the years, including how you sleep. Yeah. Like my first year was just a sleeping bag a bivy and like a, a hoodie there. And then like I, you get better. Like then I got a, a sleeping pad, which is wonderful. And then you get, I got like a sleeping liner that actually feels like a blanket. You're not like sleeping with plastic and it's just <laughs> yeah. kind of funny. You get better at, it. but it's, it's literally just 20 guys or I mean thousands. If you look across that are just have a tarp over their head, we're all just crashed. You're so beat from the day. Anyway, you can sleep anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I will say I've I've seen this bivy sack. If you're not uh, aware of what that is, Landon and I recently went camping up in Voyagers National Park, which is lovely, mm-hmm. uh, the Minnesota Canada border, and uh, it was like for real camping, <laughs> yeah. which was it was like it, like the smallest little taste for me. Where <laughs> um, we slept, I had a little bivy tent, and you had the, your bivy sack, which is just a sleeping bag with a flap. That's yep. essentially all it is, pretty much. And and camping out in like the for real wilderness, where yeah. they're real. Uh, their only advice was don't drink the water and put your food in a bear box. So right. that was great. But it was sort of this like, oh, man, like you're doing this for a month at a time yeah. while the forest is on fire. <laughs> right, right. It's it's a wild thing, and it, it's 
fun because like nobody really understands the work that goes into it and sleeping that way. But it's such a unique experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Absolutely. And I'm going to circle back a little bit to, you know, some of some of the things that you're taking away from those experiences. But tell us a little bit first about obviously you're not always on a fire call. Right. What are you doing when you're basically in waiting? Right. So um, a lot of crews are different. National crews especially, they'll have a national force that they patrol or something like that. And they, they don't really thin as much as our crew did. So our crew, we were stationed in Bismarck, North Dakota, but we um, were contracted by so – they, they had a really bad fire that passed through uh, western North Dakota, which if you haven't been to western North Dakota – you should go. It's beautiful. but uh, <laughs> I can contest. <laughs> right. So uh, they had this really bad fire go through, and it was so hot and so nasty because nobody had ever thinned this forest. That and It used to be a national forest, actually, in the early 1900s. Hmm. And then they took the national forest status away from it, and now it's privately owned. But they had this fire move through anyway, and uh, the trees actually never regenerated. It was such a hot, bad fire. Hmm. So now they hired North Dakota State Forest Service, and we go in there and we thin the forest, uh, cut down hazard trees, cut down trees that have bad genetics. And then we actually take like the pine cones, collect pine cones from like good, healthy, straight trees, cut down a couple of good, healthy, straight trees. And we take those pine cones and we plant those. So we bring them back to our foresters and they do their thing. And then we take the saplings the next year and we plant, I've planted, I mean, tens of thousands of ponderosa pine trees so that's what we do as part of our job out there and the rest is thinning the forest and we live we we lived in these um, a man camp essentially all these they're actually all these they're all these trailers that actually like we got from fema that came from hurricane katrina so they're real quality Uh, um, we all know how well things went with hurricane katrina then you got the leftovers after right so that's a unique experience on its own that's why i loved my crew so much it's you know even when we weren't on a fire when we were supposed to be home in north dakota we weren't ever actually home we were in western north dakota and we were on this rancher's land named Shaky Jacobson. And he was the coolest. He'd have a cigarette in one hand and a warm hams beer in his other hand. And he'd come and curse at us and make us do stuff around his ranch. Like we branded his cattle. We, I don't know, tons of things. Put up posts for him, put in fence, help him get his cattle, like ranging his cattle. And such a weird thing. And you have no cell phone service. You have no internet. Yeah. You have electricity just from his cabin. His cabin, the water comes out brown and oily. <laughs> so you bring in your own water. You bring in your own food to live for a week. And mm. you work hard cutting down trees, hiking all day. And you go back, though, and you're it's some of the most rewarding work ever. That hard work, and you're with all your buddies, and you get done cutting all day. And you go and you help grill out on some, some steaks. And yeah, oh, I, I loved it. loved the experience. So talk to me a little bit about that, just the camaraderie in general, you know, with being on a fire and and being around guys where, I mean, it's your job, but you are living with these guys pretty much 24-7. I mean, especially when you're on a fire and even for your crew, at least during the work week, you're living with each other as well. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like our experience, I feel like, is more unique than a lot of like how national forests do it now. They Mm. bring in different people sometimes where our crew, you get hired and that's your crew for at least that year. And we would all be together 
all all week cutting down trees in western North Dakota, you know, for weeks at a time if we're going to national fire. But even then, like, we're all guys from all different states. None, there's two guys from North Dakota. The rest of us are all from different states all over the country. And we all moved to Bismarck, North Dakota, and we don't know anybody in North Dakota either. So it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Even on our off time, our weekends or whatever, where we go, do get to go back to Bismarck, we're all together because, like, who <laughs> yeah. else are you going to hang out with? So it is kind of wild. Like, you're with these people for six to eight months straight, and they become – this i mean it is like some of the guys like oh we're not a family and they get kind of cool but like it is kind of this family like brotherhood sort of thing where we really everybody has each other's back even if they don't want to admit it like it's kind of like some of the guys will go out for drinking and there's 20 dudes out drinking and we had this one guy who was kind of whatever you go and like hit on a girl and he's like oh what's this guy gonna do there's there's 20 of us like what what's <laughs> we, we all roll together everywhere we go yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's a I don't know, super tight-knit community it, it really neat even though the whole fire world i mean you, you call any firefighter who you saw you worked for two weeks in idaho and he was an engine boss and you talked to him for a while he's got my back forever i know yeah. he does it, it's a really really cool unique group like that and that's, you know, we've had the conversation before. I suppose my closest experience to something like that is playing college football. Right. You know, which as you get older too, you know, I suppose like the military has to be sort of the, you know, the highest extreme about that. Right. You know, and that's something that people talk about is when they leave the military, missing that camaraderie, that family feel, that brotherhood, those sorts of things. Right. You know, so I've never felt anything that extreme or in your situation where you are in life and death type situations, mm-hmm. but... Can you, you know, what do you think is sort of the important thing about that or, or the important thing that generates when you are with these people and not only with these people all the time, but you are doing something difficult? Right. I, I think doing difficult things is one of the most important things in life. I don't think enough people do difficult things anymore that really gain a bond, I guess. Um, some of my favorite moments in life have been me and the guys fighting a fire. I remember one time we were in Oregon and we're putting in a hand line, this fire started by a lightning strike and we're digging a hand line around. It's already like 10 PM or something like that. We're starting to fight the fire and literally all the Oregon resources pulled off this fire and we didn't know it. So we just keep fighting the fire. We have a thunderstorm going on up above us. It starts to kind of rain on us. We see thunder and lightning in the back. We're like, well, we're going to get around this fire. Like, we're just, we're going to get this done. Mm-hmm. Get a line around it at least. And I remember like hiking out at 3 a.m. or whatever. It's pitch black. We all, all, the only light you can see is the headlamps coming off of our hard hats. <laughs> and we're all walking and laughing and having like one of the, one of my favorite moments ever. <laughs> and it's, I, it, nobody else would love that moment. You know, you most people you don't think would appreciate that. I think people need to do difficult things like that so they can have this cool appreciation for it and gain this camaraderie. Like you, I read this thing I was talking about companionative love, and it's always it's about doing something difficult with people. Like you have all these feelings, like you went through something with these people. Yeah, you will have this love and respect for them forever because of that thing yeah and some of it's growing up with people or college football or whatever the case may be and like ours was just such a unique wild experience and i i have a love for those guys forever yeah yeah 
Well, and you, and you and I have talked about that. I mean, like I feel the same way about my friends from, you know, football and college mm-hmm. where you know, we wound up living together, a bunch of us, you know, and then it is, I mean, we called each other family and, you know, mom had the, our, you know, group of my friends, right. you know, our team from college, you know, hanging up on the family picture wall and those <laughs> right. sorts of things and still consider those guys family. And uh, a lot of similarities too in sort of the, if you're around each other all the time, right? you have to entertain yourselves a little bit. Yes. You have arguments or disagreements that you have to hash out. So, so talk to me about some of those things about, you know, how do you, it's hard sometimes in a normal work environment to sort of get along with everyone and, right. and handle those things. How do you do that when you're stuck with these people? There's no two ways around it. Right. That's one of the coolest parts of it too, I think, is just, you have to move on from some things. And, and another, talking about that too, about entertaining each other. Uh, you know, I'm sure like that movie, the the big wildland movie about Yarnell Hill, I'm sure it was great. I, di- I didn't even see it. I just I figured it'd be too intense because like my favorite moments are 20 guys out in the woods trying to make each other laugh because that's the majority of the job. <laughs> you're bored in the woods yeah. and you're trying to make each other laugh. But of course you're, you're on a fire for 21 days. You're going to butt heads. It's a bunch of, young guys who can be hotheads and stuff at times. And I've had yelling matches where we're almost coming to blows and then give each other space. And then we come back in the woods like 30 minutes later. Cause that's all you got. You got <laughs> to roll in. Like yeah. you shake their hand. You're like, all right, we're like, we have to be good. So we're good. And you squash it. That's something that actually it's kind of changed my way. I think about like other people who like, if I lose my temper at somebody and like they're affected by it so much, it's like, I guess I've kind of lost that where I don't get that being affected by it for that long. Like, I, all right, like we had our little tiff and move on. Like it has yeah, to be over yeah. with. So that is something that, yeah, you gain. And you, I've had it out with some of my best friends in the world out in the woods for 21 days straight and you're going to butt heads, but you get over it and we're, we're brothers again. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that is, it kind of harkens back to that family sense right. where, I mean, if you are in a family, it's sort of, it's sort of an unconditional love sort of thing, not to get too sappy with it or whatever, but it's sort of like, Hey, we're in this no matter what. So right. like we can have this disagreement, but you got to move on because we're still here. I still got you and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. The reality situation is there's this huge fire here and like we, <laughs> we got to handle it. So the fire cares not about our disagreement. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, talk to me about nicknames because that was something <laughs> I experienced in college football too, where like there are guys to this day who I played with and I couldn't tell you their, their given name but I will remember their nickname forever. And even some of my, you know, dearest, closest friends, when someone will say their actual name, I'm like, what now? You know, I I know them by their nickname. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I don't know why that is such a thing for a group of guys to get around each other. And like, I've never had a nickname that sticks ever, but (laughs) it just happens. And we uh, had a couple of good nicknames on the crew. So like one of my buddies, uh, two chains, I talk about him all the time mm-hmm. and, uh, he's my best friend. And he, so I met him in college and, uh, his name's Christian Chuck. And I was just called him Chuck. I just took the S off his last name. He was just Chuck forever. And then we went to the crew and he always wears like two chains around his neck two like necklaces. So he got the nickname two chains and two, I call him two chains always now or Chuck. His real name is Christian. And I remember like our engine boss and stuff, I'd always call him Chuck or two chains. 
and they didn't even, when they had to write his name they're like who the hell is christian who the <laughs> hell that is like chuck is christian two chains is christian yeah yeah so the names just stick we had yeah. my other buddy robert robert horn I wouldn't even know that name at all. His name is Hippie. He's Hippie forever. He's a dude from Colorado, big beard, nose ring, a peace sign on his leg, tattooed on his leg. He is, he's Hippie. Yeah. And so those nicknames just, and everybody's kind of assigned a nickname when you're a rookie. You get a nickname because we're not going to learn your damn name <laughs> right away. Yeah, yeah. And then you kind of earn your name. So everybody gets a nickname right away and then some stick and some go away, clearly. Yeah. But. So now talk to me a little bit about that. Like you're talking about, you know, the rookies sort of have to earn their names. Uh, you've got the guy in your crew who's called Pop-Tarts. Yep, yep. Um, or Pop-Tart. Yep. <laughs> um, and talk to me a little bit about that. You know, it's kind of a fine line. You know, I remember you talking about when you came into the crew mm-hmm. and the way they treated the rookies was maybe – to a point that was off-putting, that, that too much, that hurt the team chemistry. Right. So, talk to me a little bit about that because I think that's something we lose some in this day and age is this idea of earning your stripes a little bit. Right. And of course, there is a you know a breaking point where it becomes detrimental. But talk to me a little bit about that. Right. So when I came in as a rookie, I <clears throat> we were all kind of affected by that. We we didn't think it was a, a good way to do that, and they they basically just didn't talk to us they didn't talk to the rookies and they just treated us like we were nothing and that is a terrible way that's like i told them that now that i'm friends with all these people i'm like like that is if you guys ever played a sport or anything like that, that is a terrible way to build a team so <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to really change that when i kind of got you know more seniority and we'd make it fun and you know it, it's not like some everybody gets a nickname and they're all silly nicknames and they're all kind of not demeaning, but not hurtful, but they're just silly. And we make the rookies wear pink helmets. And it's not like a feminist, silly thing. It's just you're going to wear a pink helmet because you'll stand out in the woods and you don't get your hard hat yet that has our logo on the side. Yeah. It's just you got to earn your stripes. So we had this one kid, it was his first day, and we had this big Bismarck fire. And we didn't. we literally just shook his hand and we didn't know his name. His name is Zach. He's a great guy, but... I remember we met him. Yeah, you meet a lot of guys. And then we go to this fire and our crew boss comes up to us and is like, I have that Derek guy or whatever. <laughs> so he was just Derek for a while. <laughs> and then and then that slowly turned into just other names. Like he was just Derek. And then it just turned into girl names. And Rachel stuck for a long time. <laughs> and now he's Zach. He earned his name back. But yeah, yeah. it's just, I don't know, just a fun thing in the fire world that not meant to be hurtful. But yeah. If you do something silly, you're getting a nickname that sucks. Like my buddy Pop-Tarts, who we go out to our site in North Dakota where we cut trees and we live there for a week, and we tell him you got to get enough food and water to you know live for a week, especially doing hard labor. And all he bought was two boxes of Pop-Tarts. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry. You're Pop-Tarts now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, that reminds me of like, yeah, you know, Jordan Peterson, I know, has talked about that mm-hmm. in her podcast. And it is... I tell even like the the young people that I coach and stuff is there's some things that we do just because they're difficult and it's not to weed anyone out. It's not to hurt anyone. It's not to whatever, but there's just not that many rites of passage anymore. Right. And there's something about overcoming that and understanding that when you're starting out, 
I'm not going to be the best at this. I'm going to make mistakes, especially if you're in a situation. It's, it, it is life or death. It's dangerous. Right. Like You need to have a way to curb mistakes quickly. Right. And then you come out the other side of it, and you're a little tougher and a little wiser and all those sorts of things. Right. And we, uh, you know, another rule for kind of for rookies is you don't get to touch a chainsaw for generally the first year essentially the, that whole first summer you're swamping or you're yeah. digging line you're not you're not cutting and you're learning how to kind of get around the sawyer you're learning how to swamp for him you're learning how to watch how he cuts and you know well guys were good we'll put a chainsaw on your hand after a while and give you some practice reps but you got to kind of earn that too having a chainsaw on your hand and being a lead sawyer on a on a wildland fire crew is a is a big deal and we all take a lot of pride in being quality sawyers so Again, you earn your hard hat, you earn your your and your senior firefighter status, you earn your you know t- chance to test out for your B faller or something like that to to really become a good sawyer and be a, become a quality firefighter. But at first, you're you know your first thing you're told on a fire crew you get there is not to curse a bunch, but uh, to shut the fuck up and do as you're told. Like that's yeah. essentially what you're told as as a rookie. You shut up and you do what you're told. If, yeah, and, you know if something's dangerous, speak up. But otherwise. We don't need to hear what you think. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine, especially in that line of work, for the other guys, too, it's important to get a sense of how reliable this person is going to be. Yep. And that's so, you know, at first we have a couple of training weeks and we're feeling each other out. and We're doing, you know, some some testing, some physical testing. We're talking about fire, the the, prior, the previous fire season, the fire season that we think is going to maybe be coming up, some different safety things. And then, you know, our first like big training thing is we go into the woods and, you know, Western North Dakota and we start cutting and, you know, it, you got to prove something to us here. Like this is your first week really doing the job. Mm-hmm. Step up, like show us, show us what you're going to be like. Yeah. And then, you know, you kind of earn, if this guy's a worker, like we can tell, we can tell if he's a worker, we tell if he's going to really put an effort out there and then you, you kind of gain your stripes that way and you move up and people want to work with you. People want you as your, as your swamper and yeah, that's kind of how it goes. Sure. Absolutely. So now talk to me a little bit. You, um, over the, the years you were doing this, you know, well, first, let me a point of clarification because you said Sawyer a few times. You kind of explained with Swampers, the guy clearing stuff behind. Right. Sawyer, if you're not familiar, that's the person running the chainsaw. Correct. Cutting down this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are different, in a lot of the things you're doing, there are different certification levels and things like right. that. So you start as an A faller. You start as a nothing. That's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And yeah. Then, then you get a class uh, S212 and that gives you the chance like i can run a chainsaw i took this class i am capable of running a chainsaw then you take a test and you get your a faller mm-hmm. and that means you can cut down small trees and you can cut down trees that are on the ground or whatever and our crew was different we were, we were a really good saw team and we could our a fallers i'd say are pretty quality mm-hmm. all the time and then you show you're a competent a faller you get the chance to test out for your b and our crew was mostly all B fallers, which is, which is a big deal in the fire world. Like, so C fallers are like incredible. They do incredible things. And there, we had a couple guys who were capable of being C fallers, but the majority of, of us were B fallers. And that's taking down some pretty serious trees, taking down some trees with, you know, some different bends in them and trying to twist them and, and trying to get them off stumps in certain ways. And, 
Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of hours running a chainsaw, and you can you can do some pretty interesting things with some trees. So yeah, this, talk to me. I guess while we're talking about that, about sort of, you know, once you get away from basically becoming an expert in something, you know, because when you left home and went to do this, it's not right. like you had a lot of time on a chainsaw yeah, or anything. Like none. And then we've talked about. And we'll we'll get back to this, but right now you're working for a landscaping company doing some different stuff, right? Just because we'll kind of talk about uh, it's hard to have a real long career in wildland fire, correct? At least in the way that you guys were doing it, <clears throat> right? Um, but we had the conversation of like back in our area, especially in you know north central Iowa, for instance. There's not a lot of trees. There's no right. forest. You know, it's like. Like you might be the best person with a chainsaw within a hundred miles, you know right, what I mean? Right. So, tell me a little bit about just that and sort of the satisfaction of and and working to something where like you really have to be an expert at it in that line of work. Right. It it's one of it's like my favorite thing to do ever, and it's weird. Like it's again, it's something I was nervous to do when I first picked one up, and mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. And then it's hard to explain now because you know it's just become a part of me. I can just, I just see, I, I can drop a tree and I can just see it perfectly. I know when to do a top cut or a butter cut. I see the flexion or the tension and it just, and that, like I was cutting this one kid on my current like little landscaping company. He's like, you just, you look like an athlete when you're cutting, man. <laughs> like it just, it becomes a part of you. And, uh, so yeah, like you're getting like 10,000 hours running something. You get, you get, you become an expert and I literally consider myself an expert in doing these sort of things. And I'm kind of rambling, but no, I think that sort of hits the, what I was driving at, I guess, is it's sort of, I think a lot of times people are averse to jumping into a new skill because you're not going to be very good when you start. Right. I I guess that's, that's kind of had a thought before that, you know, you see some people like, "I, I know how to cut. I'm like, well, who taught you? Like, uh, like my grandpa cut down like you don't know anything i'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you <laughs> yeah. i'm glad you know how to start a chainsaw but you know nothing like i was literally i've been taught tricks by the fire managing officer of the state of south dakota and yeah, i've cut down yeah. trees in alaska with a sea faller who was a ex hot shot and smoke jumper in alaska and like <laughs> you don't know anything and like yeah, it's, yeah. so it's kind of like i can it's hard to explain now because you you know you just you get so good with it i guess that's kind of what i was going at before you get so good with something and it's kind of hard to to teach somebody who's just starting out yeah. you just see it way before they ever see it and it's tough like I, i'm cutting with this one guy i kind of been working with and like some of the customers are like, I would, I would just do that different. Like it works how he does it, but I would do it different just because I have different training. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a yeah, different thing. But I, I love having that skill now. It's, it is one of my favorite things to do. I think there's – it's a little like artistic to me too. Like I, most people wouldn't think that a chainsaw revving all the time. But I don't know. There's something like using my hands and kind of thinking that fast and knowing what you're going to do and know what you're going to do next, know what tree you're going to cut, how you're going to cut it. You're going to buck that up. What tree you're going to go to next? Where are you going to put your pile when you're going to stack your logs and burn them mm-hmm. later? It's all just this puzzle that's all going to be coming together. And it's, I, I don't know if I can do a job that doesn't have that in it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you hit on a lot of the points I was, you know, kind of aiming at where it's, you know, I try to convey to the students that I teach and things like that is that, you know, one, the importance of, 
starting to do something that you're not an expert at right. and, and going through the taking the lumps and the learning and whatever, and then sort of the pride and that you get out of, you know, now I've mastered this to a certain level. And it, it goes from that stage where you're having to really think about what you're doing right? to where, like you said, like it becomes a part of you, it becomes automatic. And then, you know, that psychological phenomenon of being in the zone, you right. know, everything else kind of goes away. And, I always think about that with, you know, athletics. I remember, I mean, like making the jump from high school football to college football. And it like, at first it seemed like everything was being played in fast forward. Like every (laughs) goal of this is happening too fast. I don't know what's going on. And then eventually it starts to slow down. Right. And then you go and you watch like a high school football game and go, it could not have been this slow when I played. This is ridiculous. Exactly. You know, I always think of, I've done martial arts since I was five years old. But it's an interesting thing, too, to be like, you, know, you see somebody who's maybe taken a cardio kickboxing class and like, oh, like, you know, just watching them throw a punch looks wrong or, you know, right, whatever. Right. You pick up those little details. But it's also humbling to know, like you talked about, like, you can train with somebody who, oh, no, this person's the super expert. Right. You know, like I've done martial arts, you know, since I was five, but like. I'm not a UFC fighter. I don't want to be. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. there's a level beyond. You Way know, beyond. that's it. That's an interesting and neat thing too. That like there are people who in this niche little thing are experts. Right. Yeah. That's it's one of the coolest things too. Because at first it's overwhelming and trying to figure it all out and it's kind of funny you put a chainsaw in somebody's hand to begin with and it just you look stiff you know what i mean like yeah, where yeah. i like you know the chainsaw is just on my hip and i it, it pivots from my hip i don't ever stick it <laughs> yeah, out and, yeah. and you you can just tell like i can just see somebody with a chainsaw i can tell who's good but then you do get humbled by some people and it's like you think you know a lot and then you go cut with somebody you're like oh yeah wow no he's on a different level than i am and it <laughs> yeah. is really cool and uh so i've worked with some of those guys and i've like my buddy two chains again like me and him started the same time we're both very quality sawyers but he is by far a better sawyer than i am yeah and we're, we're both beef haulers and both talent but like he can do some things with trees that i i would be scared to do so yeah. it, it's wild how some guys just have a knack for it two chains can't spell good (laughs) just he's meant to have a chainsaw in his hand i swear he he's just good at it well that's an important thing too and i feel like was an important part of your journey into getting to be a wildland firefighter is like if you're willing to try things like there's something out there where you're an expert like i I tell my students that too is like there's something where you're the expert and i'm the novice right i don't know what's going on so you know take pride in that and then also on the other end like be willing to jump into things where you're not going to be the expert right it's going to be okay and right. then you'll be able to get better at it yep and that's like even for me like coming from wildland fire like i became a very respected firefighter and an emt and a faller too and all these things and i was whatever i felt really good my ego kind of puffs up and then even just go i just go to this landscape company or whatever and i don't really know how to back a trailer at the time or you know or, or drive <laughs> yeah, a yeah. drive a skid steer and now all of a sudden that is so natural to me like i can back a trailer into tiniest little spaces but like it kind of hurts your ego to be like man i've done so many crazy things and i don't know how to do this one thing like 
I've never done it. I, I, I can't expect to just be <laughs> yeah, like, it yeah. hurts your ego at times, but sometimes you just got to suck at something and get better and you feel awesome because of that. <laughs> yeah. The, the payoff is worth, <laughs> worth the initial uncomfortable right. feeling yeah, and like anxiety and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that too, we've hit on a little bit as you sort of progress through, you know, getting different certifications and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, there's sort of a, a ranking system of sorts. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, so as you kind of climbed up, cause I forget you were able to sort of like test out where then you could basically be the lead on a fire. Right. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like how do you work up to the leadership ranks? Right. So at first you're a rookie and you're just, you're just considered a crew member and you know, you're not going to get any, assignments really other than swamping and digging holes mm-hmm. and then you know you progress and uh so then you kind of you try to sign off so you're, you're considered a firefighter two when you're a rookie and then you try to sign off and get your firefighter one signed off and that considers you a squad boss squad mm-hmm. boss certification so i can have six people under me and we can run as a squad and i can dig handline and direct them essentially yep. and then uh there's incident commanders uh, so, like, my first time being an incident commander, uh, IC5, uh, you're a trainee, and I was an incident commander on top of Pioneer Peak in Alaska with no North Dakota units. It was me, two guys from Alaska, the crew I was working with, and then a bunch of volunteers from some neighboring community in Alaska. <laughs> sure, sure. And you're talking to Helitac, like helicopters up above you who are scouting out the fire. You're talking to dispatch. You've got to make sure your guys are fed and, like, okay and have everything they need. And you're trying to put out a fire, and it is wildly overwhelming the first couple of times you do it. Oh, I bet it's so much to take in, and you're like, I remember the first time I did it, like I, I kind of just like told them what I did, and like I just started working. Like if I just start working, I'll be okay. And I just start digging a hole because <laughs> yeah. that's uh, that's what I know I'm doing. I know how to dig, dig a hole. Yeah. So, uh, it's a wild thing, and becoming an instant commander, and I mean, there's some guys who do some incredible stuff, but then, you know, you get your squad boss, and then. If you're good at that, you might get your single resource boss. Like you might become an engine boss or a, or a dozer operator, a dozer boss or a helicopter boss. Like there's, there's just so many things in the fire with the fire investigator. There's so many things you can go and kind of do. Mm-hmm. And I, I went and got my EMT, my uh, national registry EMT certification. And I was the lead EMT of our crew as well as one of the lead Sawyers. I was one of our lead fallers and I had, I was a firefighter one and IC five. So I had squad boss status and you just kind of move through the ranks that way. And it's awesome. It's, it's a great way to, to live for a while, but it, it does, it's not much of a home life. So <laughs> yeah, it does yeah. take a toll, but yeah. So now talk to me about, so you spend a lot of time in these high pressure situations, mm-hmm. you know, in a leadership role a lot of times, those sorts of things. Does it ever, is it ever difficult going from that and then going back to regular life? Like, does it feel like things are in slow motion? It sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes regular life is great, but it is, it was tough. Like, so when I quit the crew, it just got to the point where uh, I'm not really going anywhere in North Dakota. I'm going to go do something different and you go and it's just frustrating. Like, you know, we're there we're all wearing the same stuff we're, we're tucked in. We're looking 
you know, it's, it's a uniform. Like we're, we are looking uniform. We're walking in a straight line. We're walking single file. Whenever we walk, we say moving. Whenever we have to stop holding, you know, everything is passed down the line and passed back up. Everything is crisp. And then you go and you work some other job and it's just thrown together and it's jumbled. And, you know, we had, we have weeks talking about safety and weeks, how to do certain things. We have certain free of training scenarios just on random days. Like, Hey, we're going to have a medical scenario right now. So we're going to be on point if some medical ever does happen. And it's just, it's frustrating to me that, that that isn't in the real world. Like no, it's nothing is that crisp and that, you know, that, on point like you know what you're going to do every time you get to work you know what everybody's going to be looking like and everybody's going to be doing their job and like that's what i mean too like getting comfortable with a sawyer and a swamper like you get to the point you guys can work circles around each other you don't have to i don't have to think where my swamper is going to be at i know where he's going to be yeah we've done this so many times and it's just it hurts my head the chaos of, <laughs> of like oh i just need to go to the woods and cut down trees because that is oh that's all i can handle so what do you think if you were to get to the root of I me mean, what do you think is the significance of that discipline um what do you mean well maybe i didn't ask everyone i just like for me it feels like once you've experienced that level of discipline in something you know it seems difficult maybe even off-putting when you start right because to develop that level of discipline in anything it almost seems like at first you're doing things that are unnecessary right but I think over time you start to realize that that discipline carries over to other things and you can start to see why it's effective. Right, right. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, I guess that it's like, you know, there are, you know, you start out in fire and you're like, we're really going to walk fucking single file and we're going to say like it, you just it's just constant communication and it gets silly and you think it's silly and then. I don't, it just kind of becomes a party and like you, I, I don't know, like you kind of carry yourself a little different because you do all this stuff with all these guys. And, and then like, I, I honestly think like the job I have now is it's not more dangerous than like a life or death sort of way, but it's more dangerous and it's, it's chaos. Like it, yeah. it's not organized where being disciplined and, and knowing, knowing exactly how my chainsaw works, knowing I can tear it apart. I can, I can st- build a chainsaw from parts at this point. Like I know, I know how my tool works. I know how to sharpen my tool correctly. I know all uh, just knowing your guys being a tight knit group, knowing where everybody's going to be and how everything works and how your pumps work. And I, I don't being disciplined is the, one of the biggest, I guess, things that I took from that. And it's really stressful to not be in a very organized environment like that. Sure. I I I, I need to. That's what I mean. Like, I I want to get back to something like that because regular life just doesn't do it for me anymore. It's <laughs> yeah. I, I like the structure. I really do. Sure. Um. And then with that, I mean, sort of talking about the discipline. Um. One thing that I've just blatantly stole from you that I use in class and things is situational awareness. You the, bet. the phrase "keep your s a up." Oh got to love that so i I use it all the time um talk to me a little bit about that what is situational awareness right and okay that's a good thing in the world nobody has situational awareness (laughs) nobody and everybody on fire has their essay up and that's just something that's just a reminder we'd say to each other every now and again you're getting in like the fire's kind of popping it's kind of ripping whatever you're kind of going to a heads up situation keep your essay up 
Mm-hmm. Everybody keep your situational awareness up. Like, you know, let's look up, down, like around. Let's be safe here. And it, it's, it's, that's what I mean. Like it's such a safety and safety is just pounded into your head and things go wrong all the time. Like I, they've got stories. I got guys who've almost been hurt or killed. I've almost lost a finger or two and things get hairy, but you just kind of know how you're going to handle it. Even then too, like your situational awareness is always there where just being out in the world, just look at people for 10 seconds. There's no situational awareness. <laughs> They're just mindlessly walking around on their freaking thing with all the information in the world on it and they're looking at pictures of dogs or whatever and it's just it drives me insane (laughs) keep your essay up ah it's a so we're sort of defined situational awareness i mean it's just sort of the being cognizant of everything around you of what you know especially in your line of work you know what might go wrong and, and sort of understanding what your escape routes your plan of action those sorts of things right sort of having that stewing all the time right and that's okay that's another you said escape routes that's another that's the thing that if we don't have lces lces that's lookouts communications escape routes and safety zones Hmm. if we don't have one of those four things we are not doing this so yeah just that alone like you show up somewhere and it is jumbled and it is chaos and something like initial attack is chaos. And sometimes you do just got to go. But for the most part, if we show up something and it's not going to whatever. We're not going to get a house burnt down or something like that. If it's just grass or whatever, like, uh, no, we're going to get a lookout. We're going to get synced up our mics. Mm-hmm. We're going to find some escape routes on what we're going to do. And we're going to have some safety zones laid out. Like you have to have those things. And that's just part of the situational awareness, I guess. Like you, everybody's got to know. If, when there's, I always say this because there's this one firefighter. <laughs> this is all oh, he was the AFMO, the Standing Rock Native Tribe, and he would always say, "If things go," he has this funny voice. Was things go gunny sack? You know, he's called going gunny sack, and I can't help it. That's why when things get hairy, I call it gunny sack now. So if things do go gunny sack, you got to know where you're gonna go. You got to know mm-hmm. where your crew's gonna meet you. You know, like hopefully we're never ever gonna lose each other anyway, but. You got to know these things. You got to have your essay up and know where all your guys are going to be. Yeah. So that's another thing I think of is, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of the situational awareness. I preach that to my students, to my own kids. Right. And I always feel like, too, I don't know if it stems from martial arts or things like that, but you and I have talked about, you know, like anytime I'm in a new situation, too, you're sort of sizing people up, not in a negative way, you know, but just like, looking people over and you know i talk to my kids about self-defense or my students and things like that and talk about the best way to avoid an emergency or something like that is to have a high level of situational awareness right you know keep your eyes one day uh my kids mickey and claire and i were at the grocery store and there was someone who was in the grocery store acting very erratic right and i had spotted this person and was keeping an eye on him and then both of my kids, it was a couple of years ago, so they're, you know, four or five years old. And uh, they're like, Dad, that guy's acting funny. And I'm like, yes, he is. <laughs> yeah, correct. You know, so we're keeping an eye on those sorts of things. And then through my head, it's like, you know, what if this person does something? What am I going to do to defend myself, my kids? What are our ways out of here? Those sorts of things. Right. Which I think is always important, but does that sort of situational awareness do make it difficult to again come back into the real world <laughs> right. and relate to other people big time and i know 
like you and Logan make fun of me all the time for that because we'll be in a very public place <laughs> and my head is just on a swivel. I am checking everybody out. I'm walking and I'm just picking gaps and, <laughs> and jiving and, and juking in between. Be like, I just most people are just I sw- they're blank. They're just there's nothing there. They're just, <laughs> they're just wandering through life blank, and I I can't deal with that. I just I, I am always kind of checking out situations and I. Me and my two chance, we've talked about that too. Like you just, I don't know. Like we, we can't help it now. It's drilled into us that like we show up somewhere and I can't help it. I'm, I'm scanning a room <laughs> as soon as I walk in. I, just, I can't help but scan it and try to pick out people or exits or things go gunny sack. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, have a plan. Yeah. I'm going to have an escape route yeah. in a safety zone. I, I will. <laughs> so, And this is not to uh, denigrate anyone or alienate <laughs> All of the listeners who are not wildland (laughs) firefighters, which is pretty much everyone. (laughs) But I do think it is an interesting thing going from those sort of high-intensity jobs and then you're going back to something that's just slowed down. It's not as as intensive in any way. Right. Yeah, that's difficult. Me and my buddy Hippie have kind of talked about that too. Just recently we were talking about that and just how like, you know, it's it's very rare you get this group of guys who just do something so difficult and it's like what people would say like is the worst work possible and you just yeah, you, yeah become so close to it and you love it and you just i don't know it's, it's drilled into you and he says the same thing like it's just it's kind of weird it's not that it's like a life is dull or anything like that but it's just it's a different level that's for sure yeah and that kind of takes me back to something you said you know, much earlier in the podcast, you're talking about the state fires where you're, you mean, right. you're the initial attack people. You're right. there. And you said, you know, those are the really fun ones. Correct. Where I think most people would, even the less intense parts of your job, I don't think a lot of people would go like, oh, this is fun sleeping in a slat, <laughs> you know, sleeping in a sack on the ground. Right, right. Um, what about it is fun? It's just, it's organized chaos, but it, it's, it's for you show up and like you're, you're just, your mind, especially like it's a, if it's a grass fire, so like grass fires are a ton of fun mm-hmm. and you're just, you're running. So one guy's like hanging out the window, one guy's driving crazy and you're trying to, you're spraying it and like it's, it's, it's you're running, you're running hotline essentially. And you're just trying to put out this fire and it's just adrenaline shoots through you for this brief moment in time an hour or so depending on how long the fire lasts and then like you it's such a strange night because the other then you're sitting in your truck or you're doing push-ups or you're reading a book or like it's so strange because it's most of the time it's chill and then you have to just be ready to go in an instant (laughs) sure and you get there and and like depending on the jet like sometimes you spike out on a fire so you call like so you go and you fight this fire initial attack and you get a line around it you contain it it's not controlled though so you contain this fire then you get to sleep next to this fire with all your buddies and wake up in the morning and fight it again. And it's one of the, <laughs> the coolest experiences yeah. ever. Like initial attack, it's just, it's more chaos, but it's organized chaos and everybody's on point and the adrenaline's just up a little more than you when you're on a national fire, I would say. Sure. It's fun. So, you know, obviously the adrenaline part of it and those sorts of things. And then you and I have talked about too, um, you're doing this landscaping job thing right now, which it's a good job, you know, those sorts of things. Right. But 
Talk to me a little bit about having a sense of purpose with the right. work that you're doing. Well, that, okay, that's the thing too. And in, in wildland fire, especially out west, uh, it's not a, a career so much. It's it's a job, and it's a really fun job, and it's and you feel important doing. Like it never it didn't hurt me to say that I worked for the North Dakota Forest Service. Like I I'm proud to work for the North Dakota mm-hmm. Forest Service. I had a lot of pride in that. And but it's a job that I think everybody they go through this process where like, well, I'm getting older. I do want a family. I do want to settle down, have a home. Like I can't be jumping from apartment to apartment and living on floors. And I can't do that forever. That's what you'd like. You are just crashing on floors. And yeah, this is a guy who uh, didn't own furniture for a considerable amount of time. At one point, everything you owned fit in your Jeep. Correct. And that's how a lot of us live. If it doesn't fit in our cars, we're tossing it. Yeah. So it's a very cool lifestyle, but you get to a point where you're like, well, I need to try to do something. And I know a lot of guys who've, who've done this too. And then like they go work a construction job like, well, you know, I met this gal or whatever. We're going to try to settle down and they do it and they go, Oh, this sucks. And I thought I was going to be different for whatever reason. I thought I was like, <laughs> well, I can't, I can't do this North Dakota thing anymore. It's, it's not you know, going anywhere for me. I'm, I'm not going to have a career here or like a life here. So we moved somewhere, La Crosse, Wisconsin, somewhere where we thought would be a cool place to be. And I got this landscaping job and they do trail work and stuff. It's like, I'll learn how to build trails and it's cool. I'm learning things. I've learned some native mm-hmm. plants and kind of the importance of rain gardens and, and food forests for the, your community. It's like, I'm learning some things, but I don't have that pride. That's that importance anymore. Yeah. And that is why I, I will be a firefighter again. There's, no doubt about it in my mind i'm going to make that happen because and i, and I don't want to i really i i don't like national fires yeah it's it's chaos and it's kind of gross there's a thousand firefighters eating and sleeping next to you and using the same porta potty it's just it's kind of gross like yeah. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I i really don't enjoy fires out west and stuff but i have this importance for me like i can still do something for my community i am an emt and i have experience in fire and all this stuff and I am not meant to landscape. I have, sure, I have, yeah. I have come to realize that I am meant to be in the woods. I am meant to cut down trees and try to uh, help my community in that way. So yeah. I, that is, yeah, I, I need to have importance in my job and feel self-important. And yeah, so that's my next step, I guess, is getting back to the fire world, really. And, and maybe an important thing to point out, too, for anyone who may be listening, like, oh, this sounds like an interesting thing. Um, you know, not all wildland firefighters do this, but you have your structural firefighting as well. That's a different certification. That's a different, you know, training thing. Um, and then I think an important thing for anybody kind of jumping to something new is understanding there's opportunities to stem off from that. Right. Where you have the capability to do some forestry things, right. um, you know, department of natural resources things. Yep. Uh, like you said, your EMT, that's something that you were able to get training for while you were doing the wildland firefighting right. thing. Yep. Um, you know, so that's important too, is you can branch off from these different things if you're willing to put in some of that work, get some of those certifications. Right. And that's something I tell the young guys all the time is, you know, I, we, we all started out with no skills at all. Essentially. I was a young kid who worked at, I ran some machinery and stuff like that at, at Valero and did some different things, but I didn't really have any skills. And now I literally have a trade that can take me anywhere in the country. Sure. I, I am that good of a sawyer now that I can literally go anywhere and get a job cutting down trees or doing whatever. It's so like, 
start, just do something. I always tell that chase whimsies. If you got an idea, go chase it and go figure it out and you're going to suck at it for a while, <laughs> but go and do it. Cause now I, I, you know, I kind of picked where I want to be and I will get a job that I want to do there. Like even yeah. if I, you know, start your own tree trimming business or whatever the case may be, like there's so many options. If you have a tangible skill, people will come to you. Yeah. So, well, and that's, it takes me back to a couple of things. One, just uh, going back to uh, really how the wildland firefighters, a lot of you live. You know, I remember when Amy, your now fiance, was going to move in with you in North Dakota and you talking to me on the phone upset that she wanted to bring a couch. <laughs> right. And no I was like, well, as one does, uh, <laughs> right. while you're fighting fires for months at a time, she may want to sit down. <laughs> right, right. But, but it, it's, it is a lifestyle of there's no sense in having all of these attachments, especially large ones, right. when we have to travel light and we have to live other places right. and do those sorts of things. And that was a cool, like my rookie year was a lot of fun just as a bunch of young guys and none of us had like any attachments. We were gone my entire rookie year. We were cutting yeah. constantly. So you were with these guys all the time, but then you, we'd only come home for like two days here and there. Then we'd go, go out again. So four of us lived in this bad apartment and <laughs> yeah. we, had, we had not, we had no TVs, no furniture. None of us even had a bed. Yeah, we all we all called it carpet time, and we would just <laughs> all, and like so we just sit there and try to make each other laugh again, and we just call it carpet time. We nothing to do other than listen to two trains make up a rap, and <laughs> listen to my buddy Chisholm play the guitar, and like that was our life, and yeah. it was so cool as a young man. <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. glad it's over, and I got a couch and a bed now, but. <laughs> It was awesome. Couches and beds are okay. (laughs) Right. They are okay. But yeah, no, it's a cool lifestyle. I'd recommend it to any kid who figuring things out still, because that's what all of us are doing, just figuring it out in the woods. And I, you know, just again, stemming off a couple of things from that, you know, I think one thing we talked about having a job where you feel a sense of purpose, that's something I always try and instill in my students as well, where no matter what job you get, not every day is not going to be cupcakes and rainbows and right. you're not going to enjoy every minute of it. But if you have a career, if you have a life that feels purposeful, right, that's the thing that drives you. And at the end of the day, you can feel good about it. And so I always try and tell my students to start with that. I mean, start with what are things that you do that make you feel purposeful? What are things that you feel? I mean, even simple things that you may not think of as significant, like, you kind of mentioned you're not a big uh crowd of people type of person they're the worst (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i mean understanding those things about yourself i think is really important to be like okay i'm not gonna be happy crowded into an office right that would be a death sentence for you for sure for sure you know so i tell those i tell my students that too you know if i didn't have opportunities to be creative and and speak to them and do something that i feel is purposeful as an educator and those sorts of things i think i would be very unhappy with at least my career with that as well so i think that's an important starting point and i think it's a great thing to sometimes just jump in and try things for sure and figure out you know, is this because sometimes it's hard for people to know what they really want truly. And then you go and do something like this and yeah, it is a, 
hey, I really do enjoy being in the woods and I really do these sorts of things where for other people, that would be a nightmare. Right, right. And I was like, some of the two things I live by all the time is like, get out of your head, follow your heart and chase whimsies, man. If you think something's interesting, kind of go check it out, go do it. And uh, yeah, like when I got started, I, I didn't know any, I couldn't tell you an oak from a maple. Like, yeah. like I, that bad with trees. Like, I, I don't know. I have no skills in it. And now I love nothing more than going to the woods and being surrounded by trees and people get sick. Of me. I'm like, I quiz my fiance all the time. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what tree is this? What tree is this? And I, I love that part of life. And I never knew I did, but I chased a whims. I chased whimsies. I, I, I made a decision to go try something and it worked out so well. It yeah. was an incredible ride. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I say that do something that follow your heart, do something that means something to you. And uh, yeah, I guess get a skill and enjoy it. Yeah. And that, and so we've talked a little bit about, and I don't want this to seem like, you know, we're talking totally entirely in sort of a male focused thing, but right. this line of work attracts a, you know, sort of a type of person cut from a certain type of cloth, I suppose. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I guess if you can describe a little bit, I mean, who are the people that are generally gravitating toward this? Not that, of course, there's always, you know, other variations to that, but. Right. And, you know, there's different crews I'll have. I can only really speak of my experience with my certain crew. And my certain crew is kind of a really cool group of guys where, you know, that's the the people I'm sort of drawn to. They're people who are kind of searching for something. They're they're all, most of us were guys who didn't really know what we wanted to do we all Hmm. i feel like all of us were kind of had a little lost moment or like i don't know nothing really sounds right to me and well i don't this at least sounds cool Mm -hmm. and then we all and we're all from different parts of the country we all end up in north dakota none of us are from north dakota know nothing about north dakota and we just made the best of it and they're they're my favorite people they're people who just kind of like you know question things in life and that's those that's who i'm going to be drawn to all the time people who just I want to experiment and figure out their journey, their certain path through this world and meet some cool people. And that was my experience. There's tons of people. You meet fires, you firefighters on national fires and they're just there for a paycheck. And you know, you meet, yeah. you meet people, of course you meet people from all different paths and some you can, you show up, you're like, well, that's a bad fire crew. You can just tell. Yeah. And some are really put together and put in the time. And but my group, I, I would say that, I mean, we, all guys from kind of similar paths in the sense that didn't know what we wanted to do. Maybe some of you got a little trouble or something like that and just kind of yeah. feeling our way through the world and uh, led us to the woods in North Dakota and uh, <laughs> we're all better because of it. And that, uh, that why becomes such an important thing, you know, right. like why are you doing this becomes the, the driving force. Exactly. Yeah. Knowing your why. And, you know, sometimes guys, you know, we do butt heads and things get stressful, but like we're all here trying to accomplish this cool goal. So yeah. and knowing your why is a big deal. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so safe to say that wildland firefighting is a predominantly male profession but it's something women can do absolutely yeah especially like our i I, my crew just never had females that applied to it it's a little different state crew we kind of we go to that one itasca community college and that's where we get most of our guys most of us us guys we all came from the same college Mm kind of strange but you know every national 
crew, hot shot crew, smoke jumpers. There's always women on, on all these crews. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, I mean, it's such a unique group too. Like I fought fires with, you know, Native Americans, clearly on tons of Native American mm-hmm. cultures. They, they have a really strong fire program on uh, you know, Native Alaskans. I fought fire with, you know, so many different smoke hot shots and all this stuff and uh, convict crews. I've literally fought fire and slept next to convict crews out there trying to do something good in the world after they made a mistake. And, uh, it's such a unique experience. It, uh, I, I don't know. I'm better because of it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're getting kind of close to the end, but uh, do you got uh, like a, a cool story for us? An exciting fire experience <laughs> maybe to end with? Like a, a one situation that was particularly sketchy or something like that? Sure, sure. I, we've had a couple, a couple watch out moments, I guess. Uh, the one that always kind of comes to mind is I, my buddy hippie about got killed and uh, <laughs> we, we were in Oregon and we were working a night shift and the fire was still ripping pretty well. And we were uh, kind of on a side hill. It was like pretty stick, steep uh, drop off if you went back and we're all kind of mopping up around this tree. Mopping up is basically just mixing hot dirt with cold dirt essentially. <laughs> but we have like a flame. We have you know, things that are flaming above us, these, these uh, all these pieces of, uh, like, cigars is kind of what you call them, these pieces of uh, broke-off trees that are still mm. smoking. And one of them actually broke off, the top broke off, and starts coming end over end on fire, this big log, end over end. And I'm actually behind this tree working, and all of a sudden I just hear all my buddies just, watch out, watch out, just start screaming. <laughs> and, and everybody, and I, I turn and I look, and my buddy Gibby, he jumps away. And my buddy Hippie is just standing there holding this tool, like getting ready to hop either into fire, off a cliff, or into tools, or just, you know, he's just waiting to make his last move before this log kills him. <laughs> and it literally stopped, like, the last turn it could possibly make. If it hit one more turn, it would have came. And uh, it stopped, like, dead right there. And I was like... <laughs> Wow, like that was a close call. So there's all sorts of moments. Like another one, uh, cutting down trees and at the Bismarck fire, and uh, my buddy, when homeowners are involved, it gets a little sketchier. Yeah. And uh, he was cutting down a tree, and we had to push it through this crazy little window in a widowmakers. They're a really nasty thing in the fire. Widowmakers kill a lot of firefighters, and this widowmaker broke the top broke off of this tree, and it came. And it like totally grazed his hard hat and hit the side of me, dropped his chainsaw. And he just looked at us and goes, I almost died there. <laughs> like, you sure did. Pick that chainsaw back up. We got work to do. And uh, that's, yeah. Then you move on, on to the next thing, on to the next tree. And I, I imagine that's sort of an interesting lesson to take into life too, where it's, if you're on a fire, you don't have time to sit and really contemplate the fact that you almost died. Like you have to just shake it off and move. <laughs> right. So right. I suppose it becomes more difficult in regular life to get worked up about, you know, cell phone reception or something like that. That's just it. Even just like listening to people complain about something, it's just like, oh, like you, like you're complaining is not helping the situation. Just move on. Like, like we got to get past this to accomplish anything we want to accomplish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. That is interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe I just want to take a moment to, I guess we've been talking this whole time about firefighters. So first, a thank you to the work that you do. Yeah, you bet. And all of our, you know, people in service professions, the wildland firefighters, structural firefighters, 
EMTs and first responders, police officers, everyone in the you know military armed services, right. because what all of you guys do allows me to do the things that I do. <laughs> right, um, right. So a thank you to everybody who's listening who was involved with any of those and those sorts of things. And thanks a lot, man, for coming on and talking about it a little bit. Uh, and uh, hey, whatever, man. Love you, man. <laughs> you bet. Love you, too. I had a lot of fun. This is cool. All right. Well, that wraps episode two. Thanks a lot. You bet.